everybody, I'm Jonathan. And I'm Jeremy. And we are the Evangelicals. Today we have with us in the studio from Saginaw, Michigan, Sharon Norman, Reverend Sharon Norman, almost Master Reverend Sharon Norman. <laughs> but around here, it's that state up north. It's not, you don't say Michigan, it's... You're not even a Buckeye, man. <laughs> I live here. I live. I just, I know. Sharon, we're delighted to have you here. Thank you. Sharon is a worship leader. She's a mother. She's a mentor and friend of mine. Uh, we've been we've been friends for uh, six or seven years now. We've mm-hmm. been pals, uh, fellow worship leaders, and we've had the opportunity to lead together, uh, to teach together. And uh, she's in town in Lima this weekend joining uh, the Lima Community Praise Team. And so we wanted to make sure that we had her on the show. Sharon, welcome to the Evangelicals. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. We um, have a lot of things that we want to talk about. Uh, this, You're going to be with us on another episode as well, but this one we want to talk about race. Mm. Maybe something that we don't talk about in the church often enough. Mm. It's the elephant in the room in many situations. <laughs> yes. And Sharon, you have a different skin color than I do. For real? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, This is a conversation that um, has been awkward in the church, especially in the, and when we tend to talk a lot about the United States church just because it's our situation. And really, um, in in the civil rights movement, we're part of a denomination, the Church of the Nazarene, that really didn't know what to do Mm -hmm. in many situations, that was pretty silent on the racial tension and the situation of race in the States. And now we find ourselves in the 21st century where racism is really alive again. Separatism is really coming alive. Uh, Tribalism of uh, brands of old are coming alive. And we in the church have got to talk about what we're not talking about. And that is racism. I I think I just want to begin by fielding the question to you, Sharon. Why is it important that we talk about race in the church? Well, um, I want to start with just even your intro. You said racism is coming alive again, and actually it's been alive and well. Um, And the difference between now and days of old is that we have video cameras and phones. Mm. So it's not that it's happening more. It's just seen more because we have the mechanisms to be able to show it up front and up personal you know, upfront and personal. And so that uh, has given the illusion that it's something that's super big now. But I've been black all my life. (laughs) And so, and uh, the experiences, I won't say they they still exist, you know. And my husband, uh, who is also African-American, would say the same thing. I mean, before... You know, we heard about brothers getting stopped by the police. Uh, You know, that happened to my husband years ago, you know, and it it continues to happen. And so we're this dude is a teddy bear. He but he can get pulled over. You just, you know, and his dad actually taught him um, one of the things he taught him as a rite of passage is what to do when the police stops you so you don't get shot. And that, and that was like when he was 13. So it's been existing. Um, 
And I think it's just as real before it just takes on a different face and a different shape. And the reason why the church has to talk about it is that when we don't talk about things, we have these rose colored glasses as if they don't exist. And to be able to feel another's pain and to walk through another's experience, uh, you got to be able to acknowledge that the experience is happening. And when you don't, it's, it's almost as if that person walks it alone. And if we are brothers and sisters, one of my favorite songs is, um, Brother, let me be your servant. Yes, yeah, a servant me. song. We are pilgrims on the journey. Yeah. We are family on the road. And so if that means we are walking this together, then you have to be willing to walk just a few steps in my shoes. You have to be willing. And so if you're not willing to do that, it becomes very easy to assume that, oh, it's all good. I'm not experiencing it. So it's fine, but that's not accurate. And so I think the church has to be realistic about what's happening because the reality is racism and prejudice, uh, which I think are two different things. I think when you hear the term racism, there is this immediate, I don't think that way. I don't do that. We all have prejudices. We just do. I walk into a room full of white people and I'm thinking they look skeptical. I'm just, you know what I'm saying? I just, I put up this and I have to work through that. And so I think to go, one of my, the things I hate to hear church folks say, I'm colorblind. Really? How many colorblind people celebrate that? Like they buy glasses to see color. Why would you choose not to see the unique beauty that God has created? And I think when we ignore it, when we don't talk about it, we skip over that. We skip over the beauty. We skip over some of the cultural um, experiences that we all have that really can impact us all. And so... I think I think we cheat ourselves when we ignore race, when we don't talk about it. I think we cheat ourselves and, and we cheat ourselves out of opportunities. Jaren, can you give us a little bit of biography? Because you're you're interesting. Oh, you, thank you you have served for the last decade or more mm-hmm. as a pastor in predominantly white congregations, Almost right? Almost twenty years. So I what's so what's the deal it. with that? Well, well. I'm not sure if I was crazy. No, I'm kidding. Um, So let's see. I'll go as far back as I grew up um, in a Baptist church. And uh, around 1999, I did this book by Henry Blackaby, Experiencing God. And I went through this study with a group of believers. And in December of 1999, it, it it was like God said, okay, here, here we are. You can either cross this line in the sand and go with me or stay on this side and just kind of live this mediocre existence as a Christian. You got two choices. Come my way fully or stay over here. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to take the line for 200 Alex. And so (laughs) about six months later. I moved to Memphis, Tennessee, and I really felt it was a season where God was plucking me out. I'm from Grand Rapids, Michigan, so I felt like he was plucking me out of where I had been, and there were some things he was working in me during that season. Uh, During that time, 
uh, my beloved. Uh, I had been gone a year, and he called me and said, the Lord has told me you're to be my wife. Oh. And uh, I got married 10 months later. So wow. <laughs> He was right. <laughs> yes. And so we it'll be 17 years, June 8th. And so, so I came back, but when I came back, the thing I, I really knew is that I, had div- I was a really good church member. I was, I mean, I was the kind of church member that a pastor would love. I was there when the doors opened. I was at every service. Yada. I was, I was doing a lot in the church, but it become church work. And God was calling me to go deeper and go to a different place. And I knew when I came back to Grand Rapids, I couldn't go back to what I had been doing. Um, and so uh, God sent me to the Nazarene Church. And that's how I got here. We got married and um, an opportunity opened and we knew that it was what I was supposed to do. And so I started serving at Grand Rapids International Fellowship. Uh, The heartbeat of that church was um, it had been for 90 years an all-white church, but the landscape of the community had changed. And they decided that God wasn't calling them to go out to the suburbs so they can stay themselves. But God was telling them to stay there. And what that meant is that their staff needed to change what they did needed to change in order to be a welcoming place for the community that looked a whole lot different than what was existing. And so I was at Griff for 11 years. And uh, when I started, I think there were two Vietnamese families and three black people. When I left, there were 21 countries represented. And so it was a pretty eye-opening experience. It was a humbling experience. Um, You know, it was very, it was clearly revealed to me that I had my own biases uh, and that God was calling uh, for his church to look like how he had planned for it to look like. And to be a part of that was awesome. And so um, it was still, there was probably about a 65, 35 makeup of people of color and all, all white. And, um, and then I moved to the Olivet community. Uh, and that was very interesting. It was very different uh, dynamic, but got to serve with students there as well as be on staff at Kankakee First. And um, a very insightful time. I would say, um, and where I thought it was interesting where I found myself on the side of racial reconciliation and in, in, at Griff, I landed in prayer on the Olivet campus. Like that was for whatever God was doing next, I would need to, I guess, be immersed or hone that area of my life. And probably about a year before I left uh, was a significant move for me um, in returning to the conversation of race within the church. And I would find myself in sunset cities in, or sundown towns in Illinois. Explain that. Explain that. A sundown town was a town <laughs> where um, <clears throat> African-Americans should not be caught after the sun went down. And some of them could not buy homes in those areas. And for some, I think that that those laws have changed. But just kind of the 
the remnant of the reality exists there. The spirit of the place. Yeah, it's it is what it is. And and I was in those towns talking about race and being very, you know, you know, very transparent and you know, and so it was just it was a very interesting thing. And even having conversations on campus uh, with administration, just you know, we really, you know, what can we do differently? Um, what what can we consider differently? Uh, because we do have a campus full of with kids who are having experiences and are suffering in silence because they think the administration won't hear them. And so, so yeah, it's, and then back to Saginaw, which is a town, or to Saginaw, separated by a bridge. On one side is here, and on the, so it's just... My, a racial, there's yeah, a racial, oh, racial tension yeah. and divide yeah, oh, yeah, in the town. Yeah. So it's not the other side of the railroad tracks, it's the other side of the bridge. It, it literally. Yeah. Like, it's just, there. it's two different, it's very interesting. And so it has been, the journey has been a joy in spite of some of the um, experiences with, I probably had more experiences within the church with um, racial things than outside of the church, you know. When, When our culture tries to have this dialogue with race, there's these code words. And sometimes mm-hmm. when these code words are said, walls automatically go up yep. or defenses get up big, you know. And, and so how do we in the church, when we hear words like white privilege and we mm-hmm. hear words that, that once again, either make emotions explode mm-hmm. or shut emotions down, mm-hmm. how do we start to define those words and help people mm. who, because the culture has an idea of what white privilege is. Yep. And and Fox News has an idea and CNN has an idea and yeah. all of the other news outlets have their yeah. ideas. But how do we in the church not let culture define what those yeah. is? And so maybe how do we understand white privilege and be, just begin to understand and have that conversation in the church and have better conversations rather than the conversations culture seems to be having sitting around those things? Well, I think we when we get wrapped up in the culture, we forget we are a redemptive people. We are a people of redemption. And so when white privilege is mentioned and there's no opportunity for redemption, that thus becomes the problem. And so one of the gifts of being in a predominantly white church for 17 years, I've got to do life with people. And so when I hear, um, you know, there are some many amazing men and women that I've gotten to do life with that just don't fit in 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 the categories that sometimes all white people are clumped in. Mm. And I struggle with that. You know, um, at the birth of our second child was our DS and his wife praying for us. They had been missionaries in Africa for years. If there's anybody who championed our family more and the people around us is those two. So when I hear white privilege, I also see a man like John Seaman who took his privilege and used it to better other people. You know what I mean? So there was a, there's a redemptive piece to that. And I think absent that, uh, I think we stopped the conversation is you get this. And because you get this, you don't understand that. And I don't think that's a fair assessment. Um, But also I don't think 
it's a productive assessment. What can you do with that? First, acknowledge. Acknowledge that there that that you and I'll use my husband again can walk into the store and there is a good chance statistics can prove this. There is a good chance he will be stopped or watched on the cameras before you will. Just acknowledge that. And we can move on. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like and and that doesn't make you the bad guy. It's not your it's the way our our world it, it's unfortunate that that is how it is. I, I mean, it is what it is. But when we fight, it is what it is. And 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 again, when you don't a- attach the redemptive nature to it, I think it becomes there's where the resistance lies. And, you know, there are some who live in it, love it, ain't ever going to help anybody. But there's also folks on the other side. I mean, you know, so... I just I struggle with conversations that don't offer redemption because we are a holiness people. We are a people of grace. We are a people of redemption. And if the conversation can't move in that direction, my question is, why is the church having it? Yeah, that's right. So, you know, it makes it very difficult. I uh, <laughs> a DS in our... Uh, that's, a dis- that's district superintendent yeah. for all of you and, Methodists. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but he he was after the young men, I can't remember his name, who had the confrontation, who stood in the confrontation with the Native American gentleman. Uh, the picture that was plaster- plastered across the world. Um, one of the things one of our district superintendents said he was just getting sick of it because uh, white heterosexual males are have become targets. And and I have six sons. And I mean, he just goes on this. And so, you know, I was nice enough to send him a little email. I'm so sorry you going through. I really am. I I really my heart breaks. And and believe me, I understand my husband and his dad and his dad's dad, they They've dealt with this for, for, for centuries. Yeah, so, you know, it's like, I wasn't trying to be mean because I really do feel bad that you actually have to know what black men have been dealing with forever. So it's not a denial. It's not a, it's an acceptance and then saying, that's great, but now it's, where do we go from here? Exactly. Like, let's just exactly. call it what it is, call a spade a spade. And now how do we as holiness people, as evangelicals, as good news, how do we in the midst of a culture that seems to just not be able to have this conversation well, call it what it is, now how do we as the people of God interact mm-hmm. and move on beyond this point? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the hard parts about that and the reason why we struggle is because this conversation so much get wrap, gets wrapped into politics politics and it becomes a political issue and when something becomes a political issue we seem to have a hard time separating the human issue and that's problematic so yeah and i think that as we as we journey on and we talk a lot about that that we live for a different kingdom a different politic mm-hmm. a different um, understanding of what mm-hmm. gives us our identity and our ethic. Mm-hmm. And too often 
We've said before that most people get their ideologies about what the Fox News commentator said or the CNN commentator yep. said rather than who Jesus was and what the cross symbolizes mm-hmm. for us mm-hmm. of this servant heart, this servant understanding of living. And um, unfortunately, I feel like in the white church or the Caucasian, whatever adjective, I think that we are battling news ideologies mm-hmm. and we can never we can never get to the gospel because we're mm-hmm. having to deconstruct all right. of these understandings and thoughts right. that that have so polluted the church and our mm-hmm. thinking about race about everything yep. and uh and so i feel like it's a it's a struggle sometimes to to even start at ground zero yeah because we, we and we really have to detox from our politics yeah we have to detox from our politics. And because we won't, you know, it it is amazing to me how, so I had a conversation with a Christian that I love. (laughs) It wasn't my husband. I'm not going to put them out there. (laughs) Um, But uh, they were, they were going on about, uh, we had a family friend who's, uh, maybe it was their child or co- whatever it was, got got married. They were gay. They got married. And so it was an older family member, and they were like, can you, I mean, this world. I mean, they were, they were just going through it. This this world. I mean, two, two women's getting married. It was just so funny. <laughs> and I was, and so I, I said, well, did you vote for Obama? Well, yeah. <laughs> said, so you do realize that just a part of the democratic agenda is the right to do that. The right, I mean, it's just a part of it. And so, really? And so, I mean, they just were, it was like, you so see, you gotta, you gotta kind of choose here. Right. Like, what, what is, what is what is important to you? And so I think on the flip side, you know, we have seen a president behaving badly. Now, for me to shout that in the marketplace is is almost tantamount to be getting stoned in the church marketplace. Yeah, yeah. They would stone me for saying that. Uh, some would lynch me. So <laughs> let's just be real. Some yeah. would just like, yeah. you need to hang that up. <laughs> um, I mean, and and I say that tongue in cheek, but we have even heard a Republican uh, governor candidate actually use those terms. Yeah, right. She would show up on the front row and still got voted in. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, you know, we have a president who behaves badly, who behaves in a way we would not allow our children to behave. But he is God's answer. He was God's chosen. Well, if you're going to use the Romans passage, then you got to admit that Obama was too. Yeah, you can't. Yes. I mean, it's like you can't pick and choose when you apply Romans. I think it's Romans 13. Yeah. You cannot pick the and choose. The authority that exists. <laughs> Jeff Sessions, right. his platform, the, the authority that exists has been established by God. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's like then you have to you have to say that when Bush was in. Yeah. You got to say that. Well, second Bush, you got to say that when Clinton was in. You cannot Easy, pick and Jerry. choose. Yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. but you know what I mean? You cannot pick and choose, you know, who – you cannot pick and choose when you apply scripture to work for you. 
And so there is what seems to be, you know, there is just like, there's a lot of, and even the new, the governor, Democratic governor in in, uh, Virginia, which is almost comical. I don't, I'm sorry if I offended you for wearing blackface, but it wasn't me. But it could have been me. It's like you're a liar. That's why we don't want you in. It's not because it's not because you were in blackface 25 years ago. Because again, we are a redemptive people. Who were you 25 years ago? Like honestly, are you really going to have the expectation that someone cannot change in a span of 20 years? Then we all need to pack up and go home and do nothing. None of us should be in leadership. None of us should be doing a lot of things. We are redemptive people and we forget that when these different cultural things start, politics or whatever it is, we just forget who we are. And so I just, you know, I find myself, wow, are we still having this conversation? So we're really t- we're really talking about two different groups of people and their ideas and uh, the way that they play out their ethics today. We're talking about the United States of America socially, which mm-hmm. we're all three a part of. The United States invested in our social social situation today, mm-hmm. but we're also a part of the people of God, the Church of Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. and. I often wonder to myself, what ought my expectations be of other people? Mm -hmm. And as I think about that, really, as an American, I don't know that I do with constitutionally have the right to have much expectations of other people. I mean, we live in a place that there's freedom of speech. Mm -hmm. That's really important to us, you Mm -hmm. know, uh, although people annoy me in culture (laughs) and in leadership, I I don't know that I have, um, I don't know that I ought to spend my time getting upset about broken expectations that I have other with other people mm-hmm. in culture. However, the church is different. Mm-hmm. The church is a different reality than the social reality. Um, and I, I want to feel the question to you, what ought our expectations be of each other in the church as it pertains to this issue of race and racial reconciliation? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what ought my expectation as a white person be of my white brothers and sisters? And what ought they to be of my black brothers and sisters? Mm-hmm. And for you, as a black person, what, mm-hmm. what, what ought to be the expectation of your black brothers and sisters and your white brothers and sisters? We're not talking today about um, hardcore situations of lynching per se. We're talking about a more nuanced reality of racism that still is at, that is apparent in the church. Would you give me an example and then kind of answer those questions? Um, well, I think I would, I would first say this, uh, years ago, I went to a, I think it was M15 with Sam Vassell. Nazarene conference. Yes. Nazarene conference. Uh, and it is, uh, specific to USA, Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he did a class called Black, Christian, and Nazarene, question mark. 
I went to that class. And so I was like, yes, I got to go to that class. So he starts this class with a skit by or a this. Uh, if you've ever heard of Dave Chappelle, he is a comedian. Yes. And he does the funniest sketch on the black white supremacist. Okay. Believe it or not, Sharon, Dave Chappelle actually doesn't live far from here. He lives in Yellow Springs, Ohio. I I not know that. And so it's the premise of this sketch is that Dave Chappelle, a black guy, Uh is blind from birth. And nobody (laughs) felt the need. They felt it would be easier if they just didn't tell him. So he grows up to be a white supremacist who is like the big guy. You know, I don't know what they call him, but like. The, the, whoever the leader is and he goes to do a clan rally and he has on his hood and his gloves so they can't tell he's black and so he's sitting with the, all these guys and they say you unveil yourself you're amongst brothers and he was like okay and he takes off and and the w- one white man's head literally exploded and it is just <laughs> it is by far the funniest sketch so at the very end they had to tell him he was black and uh, he divorced his wife because she was, <laughs> you might have to bleep this, but it says she was a nigger lover. So he divorced his <laughs> wife. So Sam Bassel showed this and it's the at fun- a Nazarene conference. At a Nazarene, yeah, 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 right. No bleeping. Okay. <laughs> so here's what was funny about the whole moment was there are white people in this class, black and a very few Hispanics. The black people are dying. And the white people are looking around trying to figure out if it's okay for them to laugh at this. And so we, it is. When just, you say dying, well, the black people were. They were they were laughing. laughing. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. my goodness. We I mean just gut laugh because it is hilarious. I would really tell anybody to watch it. It's the funniest <laughs> thing. Especially as he has he fit it within what he was talking about. And he talked about we all have adjectives that describe us. Black. Um yes, wife is a noun, but they're roles that we feel. Uh um parent. These are things that describe us. They describe our experience in the world. There are adjectives. And he said the problem with our culture is that we tend to live by these adjectives. They they lead first. And he said the problem with living by your adjective is that you run the risk of it becoming an idol. In other words, whatever happens through in life gets filtered through that particular adjective and he said as the people of god we have to be different and we have to live from our noun and our noun is created in his image and when we live from our noun we are able to consider the fact that others have this same noun not just us we are all created in his image whether we choose to understand what that means or walk in that we are created in the image of god and so that perspective really, I mean, it was so eye-opening for me, uh, especially um, in Michigan District. Uh, I do music with, they have worship leaders from around the district. We'd come together and we'd go to Kalamazoo, Indian Lake every summer. And there was a guy there. And the first year he would come up and he said, oh, I just, I love you. I love when you sing. I love black gospel music. And he just kind of rambled on and on. And, and he said, uh, uh, where are your people from? 
And I said, well, Grand Rapids. And he said, no, no, no. Where are your people from? And I said, well, my mom is from Mississippi. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) we can go there. No, no. When did they get here on the boat? This guy asked you this. Yes. And I said, well, wait a minute. Things have just changed. But this perspective of living from my noun allowed me to have a very different perspective than if I was living from my adjective as a black woman. If I was living from my adjective, he probably would have told, been told off seven ways Sunday. But because I was living from my noun, I could be gracious. I could be compassionate. I could give him clear direction and I can give him a, a, an answer that doesn't break his spirit while giving him truth. Mm. And, um, and so this started many years with me and this brother, which is, is kind of funny because uh, the next year he told me he had the gift of teleportation. And when I sing, his body leaves himself and he be up in the ceiling listening to me sing. So if I was living from my adjective, I also would have missed the fact that he is a special needs individual. Just looking at him, you couldn't tell him. You couldn't tell fully. But had I been living from my adjective, I would have never saw it. But because I was living from my noun, he was my brother in Christ. And he just needed some help understanding and how to interact with people and to know what was offensive and what wasn't. And I can do that. And every year, last year when I was there, he uh, I was the first hug he wanted to have. And so he would show up at the mess hall every morning waiting for me to come to breakfast. And he said, I've been here every morning just waiting for you so I could give you a hug. You're the first hug. I mean, and had I been living from my adjective, I would have missed the opportunity. That when you talk about expectations, yeah, there you have it. I think as a body of believers, um, we have the expectation to be for each other. Period. And what does it look like? What does it require of me to be for you? And I think sometimes we make it conditional based on how you act. And I don't think that is the way Christ incarnationally acted in the world. When he came into the world, it wasn't based on how we would treat him. It was based on what he was going to do for us. And I think we have that if we are to be like him, created in his image, filled with his spirit, that is our response. So even when somebody says something stupid, says something racist, says something prejudiced, the, the redemptive side of who I am says that I cannot make it just about my blackness. My blackness always has to come secondary to my Jesusness. And so that isn't always easy. Right. It is not. But it's necessary. If, if, if Christ is going to be known, somebody has to be willing. His people have to be willing to get over all the other secondary stuff and make him primary. And it's like just shouting in my mind right now is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. writing from the Birmingham jail. And I think the only expectation where, you know, the white pastors were like, hey, slow down. Like we will be with just, and he writes back, how can't, 
slow down. What are you talking about? And it's almost like his appeal is just see us as people and understand mm-hmm. what we're going through. And I feel like mm-hmm. a lot of people read that and think he was asking so much of them. And I think what Martin mm-hmm. Luther King Jr. was asking from the Birmingham jail was just try to understand and see our humanity. Mm-hmm. And if you were going through just the least little bit you talked about earlier, and you could see that and understand that. And and once again, I feel like he was saying, see us as the noun. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Yep. That's the ask. That's the all I'm expecting of you yep. is just to see us as people, as other mm-hmm. as as followers of Jesus. And I, I don't think he probably expected a whole lot more. I, like I said, I think we put a lot on that. But as you were talking about that, I just thought, man, that's what he was asking mm-hmm. those white pastors in the South at the time, live in your noun. Don't live in your adjective. And when you yeah. live in the noun, you're going to see us and see what we're going through in a totally diff- from a totally different perspective mm-hmm. in a different light. What do you think about the civil rights leaders, Martin Luther King Jr., his contemporaries, all those people in the, that were um, really doing something radical in the 50s and 60s? Well, I, I think the history books limit uh, the significant work of African-Americans up to that point. I think there are several um, that come before that made incredible strides that that really there was a kind of a propping up the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. And I think oftentimes our history books stop there. They don't take us further back. Uh, and uh, there's a phrase, uh, because of them we can. Um, I think that goes beyond. I saw this meme a few weeks ago, and it was extremely hurtful uh, because, because again, being so trapped in the political ideas, uh, it said black people call the Black Panther or Black Panther the first superhero question mark. Black people don't understand they've had a black superhero for the past 30 years. And it was a picture of Dr. Ben Carson. And I'm like, mm, that shows how much black history, you know, because <laughs> I mean, yeah, it was just, it was absolutely ridiculous. And it's like, what about Dr. Daniel Hale Williams? First of all, Ben Will- or Ben Carson is standing on the, on really on the shoulders yeah. of, so don't start with him just because he fits in your political mindset or your political ideas, there's a bunch of black folks that did incredible things, started schools, uh, inventions. I mean, GPS, black person. I mean, I'm just saying, stoplight, black person. I mean, let's, we could go on. And so, I mean, there's these, this, this whole idea that all of a sudden our history started with MLK. MLK was a continuation and took it to a whole... Rosa Parks gave fuel to MLK <laughs> to get to yeah. a whole nother level. And, you know, there were things that were put in place, but there's been this built, there was a building up to. And so I, I, I think to limit it to just the civil rights, um, it was the stuff before then. The, yeah, it was, there's more to it. It's not just. That that's significant. That's the thing people point to. Right. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of folks that 
that Martin was standing on the shoulders of. And, you know, Martin was an educated man. He was, you know, and that came from somewhere. He didn't just dream up of going to college. <laughs> that came from somewhere. HB, historical black colleges. There's a lot of folk who, and I think we just stop with Malcolm and, and Martin. And we decide that one is one is the right shoulder and the other one is the left shoulder. There's so much more to it. There's so much more to Malcolm's story that's missed, just making him a radical. So hearing you tell your story, mm-hmm. I can't help but think or reminisce on uh, growing up, I was a part of a denomination called the Missionary Church. And we would every Sunday night have a different missionary come and tell their story. And their story went something like this. God called them to go somewhere that was uncomfortable for them to reach a people that had that they had a revelation of God to present to them. Mm. It's kind of interesting when I hear you tell your story. Mm-hmm. I hear some similar undertones. <laughs> Maybe that God has called you to a people that you are going to be revealing truth to. I um, I think it is odd, Sharon, that you have the gifts and graces for ministry that you have, and you have continually chosen to be a part of a denomination and a group of people that don't inherently understand you. In a sense, I feel like you are a missionary to us. You are a sent one to us, to we Nazarenes, and I'm... So thankful for your voice, and I'm so glad that you are a part of our movement. So in light of your calling and and where you have found yourself and potentially will find yourself, what what are you hopeful about? It, it, there's a lot in our culture, a lot in our society that would chew or that would call us to be to have no hope. Mm-hmm. But we who are hopefully good news for the world always have a hope that things can get better. So as you see yourself, in these places where you would be uncomfortable potentially or that you have to have a lot of conversations to get people to understand why this is a good thing. Where do you see hope and and why are you hopeful for the Church of the Nazarene, but maybe even just for the Church of Jesus Christ in mm-hmm. our world? I um, am hopeful. Well, I am not old by any stretch of the imagination, but I am apparently a Gen Xer. I was told I wasn't a millennial. Oh. I've, I've had to deal with that, but I'm I'm, I'm okay. I'm a, I I think I'm You've okay. Through it. Yeah, I'm I'm work I'm still working through it. But I am hopeful in you know, when I think of you two, um Michael Palmer, um who is out in California, Montague Williams. Uh there is a group uh uh this this wellspring of great young thinkers who are thinking thoughtfully, theologically, about what it means to be God's people in the world, even as the culture shifts, and are desiring to live holy, set-apart lives, but very much incarnational in the world. And uh, that is quite the task. Um, there, this age group, and even now into the Gen Zers, they're asking some really, really good, tough questions 
that force us who've lived with our faith and grown comfortable with what we've known about our faith. Uh, it's challenge, challenging us to go beyond. I have a 14-year-old, and uh, some of the conversations that she and I have had, it has forced me to return to my knees in a different kind of desperation for his power, his spirit, his understanding, his impartation. It is just required that the world is different. And so, and and that's okay because my mom had to go through the same thing. You know, the world was different for her generation. And then here we came, us Gen Xers, and we wanted to blow up the all the tradition of the church. And now you have millennials who are saying, okay, we want a little bit of tradition. Yeah, take it back. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Y'all dial this back up. You know? And so, you know, this, this is the ebb and flow of culture. And I think we need to stop fearing that so much. It's okay because with every... Every every generation, there is new thoughts that come out, and we should not be afraid of them. And I do think there's conversations that have not been had in the church that just need to be. They need to be. And we need to wrestle with them. And, you know, I think about what the United Methodist Church is going through right now. I think there needs to be more conversation versus to just clear separation. There should be more conversation because I, I think we come to these again ideas and we hold to them as if there's no give. And so I am hopeful that the church will not stop talking to each other, not stop talking through some of the things that, that make us stuck because there are things. I don't know what to do with it all. You know, I substitute teach in our city, which go figure. I love it. Um, and I'm in the middle school and the high school, and I'll never forget the first day I called a kid's name. It was a boy's name and a girl answered. And I was not ready. And so the, I'm, I'm a little bit old school. So I was like, okay, mm, something is happening here. So then like weeks later, I have another class and I call a girl's name and a little boy answered as a mom, my heart broke. Because that boy began to explain away as his classmates whispered. As a mom, I would never want my kid to be in an environment that becomes hard to learn as they deal with whatever it is. I don't know this backdrop of either one of those kids. I don't know. I don't know. I don't think as a Christ follower, I necessarily need to know. What I do know is that I can be light and I can be love, and I can be compassion. I don't know what to do beyond that just yet. I don't have an answer for some of the questions that come up concerning the LGBTQ, uh, you know, dynamic. I don't know. I'll admit that. There's some things that are very clear to me. There are other things that I just am not sure. And I don't want to stop having those conversations. Because at the end of the day, we are a redemptive people. And I want to figure out how to live redemptively in a world that needs to know Jesus is alive. So.
The Evangelicals podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.